You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast, where we keep going after the heart of God because He's our only hope. I'm Nika Maples. Episode 51 of the Keep Going Podcast, and it's entitled, Inviting God to Recreate You. If you've been listening to the last couple of podcasts, I've been giving kind of the backstory of my books. I personally am always fascinated with the backstory of books. I like to know how the title came about, how the author chose the subtitle, where they even came up with the idea and how they generated it. I I love all of that. So if you listen to the first one, 12 Clean Pages was self-published. It's my memoir. There is no subtitle. And then my second book was Hunting Hope, Dig Through the Darkness to Find the Light. And that book was traditionally published And when I signed that book contract, pursued by a literary agent, he pursued a contract with them, and it was a two-book deal. So a two-book deal is kind of rare for a first-time traditionally published writer. Usually they do a one-off because you just never know how that first book is going to sell. And I'll tell you, I really know that the Lord was protecting me and giving me an opportunity by giving me this two-book deal because I actually think the sales on the first book were not high enough for them to have merited a second book deal, just if I had done a one-off deal. So we had a two-book deal, and what I didn't know is I thought, well, when do I write the second book? I I don't know. Are they going to tell me what to write? I actually thought that they were going to tell me what to write. That they that once I was kind of in the shoot because I had that first book coming out, I thought they were going to tell me, "Hey, we want you to write this." <laughs> um, but I didn't I didn't know what to do. So you may not realize that publishing a book traditionally takes almost two years, um, at the very minimum eighteen months. And so by the time I turned in my manuscript, man, I was ready to go for the next. And so. They were still working on the book, as publishers have to do. They're editing. They're working on the interior, the exterior. They're they're creating sales connections and doing all these things that have to be in place. And you don't even know all this back end stuff is going on when you when you're a writer. You just think the most important part is writing the book. Oh, it takes a team to put out a book, and so they were doing all of this for Hunting Hope. Well, I had 18 months on my hands, and I said, well, what am I going to do? Do you hear the thunder? It's thundering today. I don't know if you can hear it or not. And I thought, wow, I'm ready to get on the next one. And you remember, if you listen to that podcast, that Hunting Hope was originally supposed to be a four-book set. I wanted it to be winter, spring, summer, and fall in the life of a Christian. So winter would be when we go through trials. And that book became Hunting Hope. The content was the same, even though we changed the title from Winter to Hunting Hope. Well, I said what I wanted, I always wanted to do next was spring, which is allowing God to rebuild you and cause you to grow and cause you to 
develop, he cultivates you after trials. Trials mm-hmm. don't just end and then you're done. He he begins a process with you of growth and it becomes spring in the life of a Christian after trials. And so I knew that's what I wanted my second book to be. And I just said, um, because remember that the publishing company said it's kind of cliche to have winter, spring, summer, and, and fall. And so we changed those titles, but I said, I can still have the concept though. So I went kind of off by myself in this little cabin. A friend of mine owns a beautiful two-story log cabin for their family in East Texas. And out in the back, they have a tiny little guest cabin, a log cabin. It's a dream. And three or four, three books now I have asked for a weekend there to generate ideas and pray and listen to the Lord and write notes. So I did for this second traditionally published book, which would be my third book altogether. And I went into this cabin and I thought and prayed and I was like, spring, what does that look like? And I realized the absolute amazing process that happened at the creation event, the seven day process that happened at the creation event it's exactly how God continues to, to move in the life of a Christian. There's a cycle. It's a beautiful cycle. The Lord revealed to me that he is always creating in the same kind of way. He created the earth, and now he recreates us continually according to this cycle. I'll read you the table of contents. I took down these notes, and this is the table of contents is basically the notes I took in the cabin that day. Um, I split up the book into sections, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, and so on, following the creation event. And then the chapters within are the first day, let there be light. And then chapter two is revelation. So what I was proposing is what God did on the first day of the earth was to say, let there be light. But what he does when he recreates us is to say, let there be revelation. And on the second day, let there be space. That's what he said in creation. And in the life of a believer, it's freedom. And then let there be order. For for us, that's purpose. Then on the third day, let there be fruitfulness. For us, that's productivity. On the fourth day, let there be direction. That's the sun and moon in the creation account. But for us today, that's guidance. On the fifth day, let there be life. That's the animals um, on in the creation account. For us, that's community. And on the sixth day, let there be more life. That's authority. And then let them be made in my image. That's our legacy. And on the seventh day, God rested. And for us, that's renewal. So he takes us through the process of revelation, freedom, purpose, productivity, guidance, community authority, legacy, and renewal. When I wrote all those down, I mean, it's like the the content of the book just fell into place. Well, right at that time, I was in a master's degree program at the King's University pursuing um, a master's of divinity to be able to know more about the Bible because I want to teach it with confidence and authority and as part of that program, I had to write a master's thesis. So I went to my professor and I said, hey, I have this 
fantastic idea for illustrating and proposing that God continues to create us and recreate us through the same exact seven-day process in a way. And for our recreation, it can be more than seven days. But the creation account is continually cycling through our lives. Could I write my master's thesis on that? And he said, absolutely. So I wrote my master's thesis on that concept of God continually using the creation account to recreate us throughout our lives. And then I hit two birds with one stone because <laughs> then I turned in that. Not only I turned it in as my master's thesis to my professor, but I also turned it into my publishing company and said, this is my manuscript. So my master's thesis, if you want to read it, some people know nobody ever reads their master's thesis. Like my first master's degree that I got in uh, the teaching of English from Columbia University, I wrote this amazing master's thesis um, on writers who with dysgraphia and how you can help students who have dysgraphia become incredible writers, meaning producing the content writing. And who's ever read that? Only my professor. Really, no one else has ever read that. So I'm thrilled that I had the idea of double-purposing this because now anyone can read my master's thesis. The second one, the Master's of Divinity thesis, go ahead and get this book. It's called Everyday Genesis. Now, my original title was Ordinary Genesis because I wanted to intimate the concept that even an ordinary person can be recreated by God. Well, when I took that to the publisher and they were thrilled with the manuscript, they said, this is absolutely a new concept, but we don't like ordinary Genesis because nobody picks up a book that's about being ordinary. And so the, the editor pitched, what about everyday Genesis. Like you could be created, recreated every day. I said, I'm cool with that. Everyday Genesis, that's what it is. <laughs> Whoa, here's the deal. If you're titling a book, um, go ahead and look it up on Amazon. See if anything close to it pops up. Because if you listen to my past podcast about people accidentally butchering 12 clean pages and hunting hope, they accidentally say the wrong look. I thought, well, we're, we're in the clear with Everyday Genesis, except there's actually a book called Everyday Genius. <laughs> and so sometimes that's the way this title gets mixed up, Everyday Genius. Really, guys? I'm not an everyday genius. I just wrote a book called Everyday Genesis. But I do like the word everyday. We quickly came to the subtitle on this one. It was so easy to come to. I loved it inviting God to recreate you. Because I, I realized, you know, he's always inviting to do the work of recreating, but we have to invite him to do it. Um, and the cover of the book, since I like talking about covers, I knew from the very beginning that I wanted a cover that um, had, was dark, that there was darkness and that these, some growth or... Um, leaves or blooms were coming out of the darkness. And so a designer that I love, Kent Jensen, he created the cover for the book. The The publisher did not give me options. They just said, here, here's your cover. <laughs> With Hunting Hope, they gave me five covers and they said, which one do you like? And we kind of worked on it. 
with this one. They go, here, here's your cover. And I'm, I immediately gasped. And I was even afraid to open that JPEG when I was by myself. I was like, I want other people around me. I want my family around me to see if everyone likes it at the same time. I want to know. And when we opened it, everyone gasped. We all love this cover. So I'm going to be reading to you today from chapter seven. Now, in this book, Everyday Genesis, I go through this, the spiritual gifts and help you identify what your spiritual gifts are because you really would be surprised how enlightening it is to find out that you are motivated by the gift that God has placed within you. And that the gift that God has placed within you that motivates you will always be there. You cannot revoke it, but you can use it from weakness or from strength. Now, you're going to be um, hesitant to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I believe that even unbelievers, everyone has been given a spiritual gift from God but if they don't accept the Holy Spirit to empower that gift, it's going to be used for evil instead of good. For instance, Hitler, I believe he was given the given uh, that he was given the spiritual gift of organizational leadership. I believe that Hitler was given the spiritual gift of organizational leadership. He did not invite the Holy Spirit to empower that gift and steer it the way to accomplish God's great desires for him and his life. And so we all know how he used that gift. It was still a gift, and it still operated the way it was designed to operate, but it was used for evil instead of good. If you can imagine, if he had asked the Holy Spirit to empower that gift, the same amount of work could have been done in a positive direction instead of a negative one. A prime example of this just popped in my mind. Prime example of this is Paul, the Apostle Paul. In the first part of his life, he was operating from a spiritual gift, which was, I would say that was organizational leadership too, or really also exhortation. I consider him an ex exhorter. But his zeal was, his gift was in play. He was just using it for evil. He was killing and persecuting Christians because he had not invited the Holy Spirit to empower. And the second the Holy Spirit took hold of him, the same exact gift operated the same exact way and had the same exact results. They were just positive instead of negative. They were just good instead of evil. Make sense? Okay. So I'm going to read to you from chapter 7 where I talk about your spiritual gifts. The previous chapter walks through um, a spiritual gift survey, and it helps you identify your motivational spiritual gift, the one that drives you. I'm going to read to you right now the whole chapter, which is a little long, but I think so worth it, that will walk you through people using their spiritual gifts in weakness, just like what I described. Because I think that's the fascinating part. We quickly write people off and we're like, what a jerk when we see people. And we don't think, wait a second, could that be their spiritual gift in play being used in the wrong way? Because even a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit and follows Jesus can operate from weakness in their spiritual gift. And I'm going to give you, an, at the end of this chapter, I tell a story about how I operated in weakness from my spiritual gift. I think you're going to enjoy this chapter. Think about 
yourself and think about some of the people you know. And I think this is even for moms and dads. When you look at your children, you're like, oh my goodness. Now I can see our child, our child's spiritual gift in play, even when it's being used in, in weakness. So I start off every chapter with a description of the creation act. It's just a brief description, and then I dive into the content. This chapter is called, Let There Be Fruitfulness. The earth blossoms for the first time. It is a kaleidoscope of color. God shows his tenderness in the buttery petals of peonies, his vibrancy in the scarlet shock of poppies, and his perfection in the petite bells of lilies of the valley. He spins zinnias, ignites azaleas, breathes Queen Anne's lace, folds a bird of paradise plant like origami. Next, he fashions fruit with great delight, hanging bananas high and twisting grapevine tendrils low. He buzzes the fuzz of a kiwi, slices a pineapple's ponytail. He laughs and scatters berries. He fills an orange, wraps an apple in skin, kisses the blushing cheek of a peach. This is his garden, the majesty of his mind manifested for all to see. His thoughts take on shape. He loves preparing this Eden. He will not stop until her beauty is a feast for the human soul. This is where he will walk with us. He will not stop until her bounty is a feast for the human body. This is where he will dine with us. Let the land produce, he says. On day three, God covers the land with seed-bearing plants and trees. In fruit trees, we see the pattern for his magnificent plan for people. He wants us to be so healthy in our communion with him that we provide beauty to the world and nourishment for the body, which is the church. The key to this ongoing fruit-bearing health is trust. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. We can see how important fruitfulness is to Jesus. Walking with his disciples one day, he hungrily reaches into the branches of a nearby fig tree, only to find there are no figs among the leaves. He curses the tree, saying, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. No word of the Bible is wasted. If this passage deliberately points out that the disciples heard how Jesus felt about fruitlessness, then it's significant. This curse was for the disciples to hear. The master was conveying purpose. I didn't create trees just to sit around being trees. I made them to produce. So it is with you, he must have meant. We are designed to produce fruit, a lot of it. The divine sequence of recreation has brought us from revelation to freedom to purpose, and now we have finally come to the phase that we have been craving from the beginning, productivity. The kind of productivity that God values is fruit-bearing. By fruit, he means the fruit of the Spirit. So that we do not confuse similar terms, let's clarify one more time. Spiritual disciplines are the ways Christ works with the Spirit to transform us. 
Spiritual gifts are the ways Christ works through us to transform the world, including the church. And now we will look at the fruit of the Spirit, which are the godly character traits that the Holy Spirit produces in us when we practice spiritual disciplines and operate in spiritual gifts. You will recognize the Spirit's fruit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yet I would not want you to miss the delight of reading this lovely list as it is paraphrased in the message. The Holy Spirit enables us to display the impossible. It reads, Things like affection for others, exuberance for life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Abiding in Christ produces the fruit of the Spirit, which feeds us as well as those around us. Being well-nourished means we will grow and perform at a high capacity, using our gifts in their strength instead of their weakness. Yet it is important to consider how the gifts God has given us can be used in their weakness because we will more easily spot the strategy of the enemy in our lives. What God intends for us to use, the enemy intends for us to misuse. God wants our gifts to make us think more like the Savior. The enemy wants our gifts to make us think we are the Savior. Let's look at some of the ways the enemy uses our gifts in their weakest form. If you are a prophet operating from weakness, you may expose someone without restoring them, jump to conclusions, react harshly to people who compromise, be unforgiving and end relationships with those who fail, condemn yourself when you fail, be prideful when you are right, not be judicious about the best time and place to speak out, make rash decisions have extreme opinions, be intolerant, rebuke without tact, speak the truth without love, dwell on the negative, keep people dependent on your evaluation. The Lord will use your gift of prophecy to restore people. The enemy will misuse your gift of prophecy to alienate people. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the one who always has the last word. Taken to extremes, Prophets will alienate people until others look to you as the ultimate judge. But the judge is God, and he is the one who has the last word. If you are a server operating from weakness, you may give unrequested help, fulfill other people's needs while leaving your family's needs unmet, put too much focus on details and being perfectionistic, Do things quickly yourself without waiting for input from others. Work beyond reasonable physical limits. Handle tasks that the Lord meant for others. Overreact to overlooked needs. Resent lack of appreciation from the recipients of your help. Prevent others from serving alongside you if they don't do things as well as you and instead insist on doing it all yourself. Value the final product more than the fellowship and the cooperation that could have gone into it, and be frustrated with time limits. Be demanding of others who are not working as you expect. 
become irritated when people want to be involved with what you're doing for them, such as when they want to know when things will be finished or ask to have a look too soon. Keep people dependent on your assistance. The Lord will use your gift of serving to make people feel welcome, but the enemy will misuse your gift of serving to make people feel dismissed. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the one who always saves the day. Taken to extremes, servers will dismiss people's help until others look to you as the ultimate helper. But the helper is God, and he is the one who saves the day. If you are a teacher operating from weakness, you may become proud of knowledge, despise lack of credentials, depend on human reasoning, show off your research skills, reject the idea that some things are understood by faith alone, exalt reason above the Holy Spirit's leading, take doctrine to the extreme, argue over minor points, disdain teachers who use illustrations instead of focusing on facts, give more information than was asked for or needed, question a person's presentation until they feel belittled, dismiss a person or group's feelings about something in favor of the facts about it, obsessively search for information in order to make a decision, and postpone taking action until it is too late, keep people dependent on your knowledge. The Lord will use your gift of teaching to educate people, but the enemy will misuse your gift of teaching to show people that they are ignorant. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the one who always has all the answers. And taken to extremes, teachers will show people their ignorance until others look to you as the ultimate source of wisdom. But the source of wisdom is God, and he is the one who has all the answers. If you are an exhorter operating from weakness, you may keep family and friends waiting on you while you minister to others, look to yourself for solutions and answers instead of to God, take personal credit for results in the life of someone you are walking alongside, jump headfirst into a new endeavor without thinking through the cost and without finishing the previous task, treat people like your spiritual growth projects, Use illustrations from the lives of others and share stories they may have told you in confidence. Avoid doctrine that does not have immediate practical application. Oversimplify solutions. Set unrealistic goals. Become impatient with people who do not swiftly and consistently take steps to improve. Depend on visible evidence of acceptance and affirmation from others. Jump to provide an inspiring answer instead of listening until the other person feels heard. Constantly feel the need to be on and not let other people see that you've had a bad day. Keep people dependent on your positive outlook. The Lord will use your gift of exhortation to encourage people, but the enemy will misuse your gift of exhortation to dishearten people. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the one who always brings hope in a dark situation. Taken to extremes, exhorters will dishearten people until others look to you as the ultimate bright spot. But the light is God, and he is the one who brings hope in any dark situation. If you are a giver operating from weakness, you may hoard and hide resources, use gifts and support to control people, become proud of being generous, feel guilty about personal assets, Reject all unsolicited appeals for funding. 
Give too sparingly to family. Encourage others to look to you rather than to God for provision. Wait too long to give in an effort to be sure if a project or person is worthy. Harshly judge a person or organization that exhibits poor stewardship. Become, quote, too cheap. Resent the person or group who comes to you for help too often. Make people earn your financial gift. Bring up the fact that you gave instead of keeping it a secret. Keep people dependent on your financial support. The Lord will use your gift of giving to support people, but the enemy will misuse your gift of giving to lord it over people. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the one who always comes through to meet a need. Taken to extremes, givers lord their gifts over people until others look to you as the ultimate provider. But the provider is God, and he is the one who always comes through to meet every need. If you are an organizer operating from weakness, you may take charge before being asked. Try to rebuild loyalty with favoritism. Use people as resources. Delegate to avoid work yourself. Abuse authority and ignore appeals from those under you. Consider the project more important than the people working on it. Not confront someone in the wrong because he or she is a valuable asset to your project. Be so efficient that no time is taken for explanation or praise. Force decisions on others. Frustrate others who do not share your vision. Keep your plans and real intentions a secret. Make followers instead of making leaders. Ensure that people wait upon you in order to act. Keep people dependent on your direction. The Lord will use your gift of organizing to motivate people, but the enemy will misuse your gift of organizing to demoralize people. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the forerunner, the one whom people always follow. Taken to extremes, organizers will demoralize people until others look to you as the ultimate leader. But the leader is God, and he is the one we follow. If you are a mercy giver operating from weakness, you may carry grudges for another person who has been hurt, become possessive of close friendships, be tolerant of, quote, lesser forms of sin, not confront someone in the wrong because you feel pity for them, avoid discipline and conflict, base important decisions on emotions alone, accidentally cross lines with members of the opposite sex as you show compassion and empathy, feel bitter toward God when good people are allowed to suffer, cut off insensitive people, Allow others to become reliant upon you for comfort so that they don't have to move on. Rescue people who do not need to be rescued. Fail to set boundaries for someone you feel really sorry for. Feel offended when others do not show what you think is proper compassion for you, cultivating a victim mentality. Keep people dependent on your emotional support. The Lord will use your gift of mercy to strengthen hurting people, but the enemy will misuse your gift of mercy to incapacitate people. In the enemy's hands, you will desire to be the one who always understands. Taken to extremes, mercy givers will incapacitate people until they look to you as the ultimate comfort. But the comforter is God, and he is the one who always understands. 
Many people have come to mind as we've walked through these lists of misused gifts, haven't they? My deepest desire is that you'll begin to see these people with fresh insight. Please recognize that the quality that repulses you in another person might just be what God meant to be their gift to the kingdom, but the enemy has hijacked it temporarily. Perhaps this realization will enliven and redirect your prayers for those around you. And just in case you would like some clarity, I have a personal example, my friends. My motivational gift is exhortation. I am born to encourage. There's nothing I love more than pointing people toward hope. Trials can be almost thrilling for me because by now I've come to look forward to a great move of God within every struggle. It is easy for me to have faith and it's easy for me to inspire faith in others. That is the whole idea of a spiritual gift, you see. It is easy for me to give exhortation, not because I'm so good at producing it, but because I already have it on hand. I've been given that gift to give. The exhortation in me came to me at no cost. There's an endless supply of it as long as I rest and abide in Jesus so that I'm filled with the fruit of the Spirit. I will never run out of it for myself and to give away to others. I can write as many encouraging books as time will allow. I can give as many encouraging messages as my voice will allow. If I stay close enough to hear God's heartbeat, I simply won't run out of hope-giving words for the church and for the world. That is the supernatural mechanism of a spiritual gift. When you're abiding in Christ, the gift works. You don't. Let me say that again. When you're abiding in Christ, the gift works you don't. Several years ago, I bought my first house and had a joyful time decorating every inch of it. A few years passed and I realized that I had only invited a handful of people over. That had not been my intention. When I purchased the property, I meant to have dozens of people over every few months. Serving is not my go-to gift, however. Even when I'm a guest at a dinner party, I can't figure out what I should do to help. My mind spins. I don't know what to do with my hands. I say to myself, what should I do, make the salad? Mine are never very good looking. Should I bring the meal to the table? I can't walk with a heavy dish without tripping. Should I put ice in the glasses too soon? Oh, why can't I just sit on the bar stool and tell the cook that what they're creating smells wonderful, looks lovely, and that they're doing a fantastic job? That I can do. Do you see what happened there? I would rather encourage the cook than serve with him. Even when I try to function as a server, I automatically revert to functioning as an exhorter because that is my heavenly design. Now it makes me smile to see the pattern in myself. I finally get it. Trust me, you don't want my casseroles as much as you want my encouragement notes. Yet for many years, I thought the fact that I didn't find it easy to serve was a character flaw in me as a woman. I wanted to be good at the things that I wanted to be good at. I wanted to do the things that I thought made me look good or that other people appreciated more. Instead of flowing in the capacities that God has created in me, I tried to recreate myself. Instead of relying on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, I relied on myself. I decided that I really was a server who just needed more opportunities to exercise my serving skills. So I read books about entertaining guests, and I decided to invite a group of seven women over to my house. 
every Tuesday for nine weeks. Does the thought of it make your neck tense immediately? (laughs) Right off the bat, I had invited not just one or two friends over for dinner, but seven, a full-blown dinner party. And on top of that, I planned to host not just one dinner party, but nine in a row. Now that's a full-blown fantasy. And before I tell you the next fact, which will really make you question my sanity, I want to tell you that we will always revert to our God-given design, even when we try to resist it. So what you will see unfolding in this story is not an exhorter transforming into a strong server, as I hoped, but an exhorter operating as a weak exhorter. Remember, the core quality of an exhorter is that we don't quit. Exhorters keep going. We thrive in a challenging situation, and we see it as an opportunity for spiritual growth and increased faith. We assume things will be hard. Hardships give us a chance to dig deeper and abide closer. The phenomenon is that when exhorters begin to operate from weakness, we can actually produce our own challenges through which we can persevere. So sometimes I am blind to the ways that I invent unnecessary difficulties for myself. As soon as I received the RSVPs from the seven friends who would be coming over to my house for dinner parties nine Tuesdays in a row, I decided this serving thing was going to work. The transformation had begun. So I sent out more invitations. Why not? The only thing better than one dinner party every week is two. Within a few days, I had seven more RSVPs from friends who would be coming over to my house for dinner parties on nine Mondays in a row. Here we go. I was about to have 18 dinner parties in less than three months. Hooray! Never mind that I had not so much as had 18 individual people over in the last three years. Never mind that I didn't even own a dining room table or chairs. I don't even know if a real server would do anything like this. They would probably know better. But an exhorter who's trying very hard to be a server... This is a golden opportunity for faith, my friends. You don't have a table? Ask God for a table. He will provide. You don't have chairs? Go ahead and invite the people. Rely on God to make sure they have a place to sit. I started praying fervently for a table and chairs. I moved the desk and other office supplies out of my dining room in expectancy. The only thing I left in the room was the oriental rug and my mother's china hutch, which didn't hold dishes, by the way. I had filled it with faith books and Bibles and used it as a bookcase, which is exactly what an exhorter would do with a china hutch, right? I considered buying a dining set at a garage sale or thrift store, but I felt the Lord asking me to wait, so I just prayed more. I didn't mention my need to anyone. I prayed over my empty dining room every day, and I waited I leaned into God, and then one week before my first two dinner parties, I received a random message from someone I had not talked to in a long time. She wanted to know if I wanted a dining room table and chairs for free. 
She was about to put the set in her garage sale, but felt compelled to ask me first. And why? Because the dining room set had been given to her 15 years earlier by my mother. This friend was asking if I wanted the dining set that my parents had bought when I was in elementary school. It was the set I had grown up with in my childhood home. In fact, I already had the matching china hutch. I had completely forgotten that when my brother and I had gone to college, my mother had given the table and chairs to friends who could use them more than she would, but she'd kept the hutch. Yes, without my saying a word to anyone, I received a sudden opportunity to get my own long-lost childhood table and chairs back one week before I began a series of 18 dinner parties. Now, you can call that offer what you want to, but I call it a miracle. I again returned to my knees, praying my jubilant thanksgiving to the God who provides. It seemed that his favor and blessing were all over my new capacity as a server in the kingdom. Then something else happened the week before the first dinner parties. I stopped praying. Oh, I still prayed some, but not with the same intensity, length, or focus. I interpreted that table as my big green light from glory, and I started trying to serve in my own power then. And... It's not like God didn't try to warn me that I was making myself vulnerable. In fact, he warned me explicitly. I was setting that very first dinner table a day or two in advance using a mix and match combination of my mother's china and both of my grandmother's china. All three coordinated beautifully with their pale gray patterns. The table was stunning and I returned to the kitchen smiling. And then I tripped. When I reached out both hands to catch myself as I plunged forward, my left arm swept the countertop where I had placed all of the remaining pieces of all three sets of china. I landed on the floor on my back and put my arms up to cover my face as plates, cups, and platters crashed all around me. When the avalanche stopped, I was breathless still, silent, and surrounded by broken pieces. Expect opposition, I heard in my heart. God spoke it so clearly it was as if he were kneeling beside me in the porcelain ruins. Expect opposition, he said. At the time, I thought that might mean that the enemy would bring opposition through accidents and troubles, such as tripping and breaking the dishes. What I know now is that the enemy would bring opposition by using me against myself. Over the next three months, I experienced a wonderful time of fellowship with friends at each of my 18 dinner parties, but I wore myself out. My limited mobility was tested to the uttermost. Both knees swelled from so much time spent standing in the kitchen. I was constantly cleaning my house and I would collapse in bed each night in fatigue. But because I was operating in my exhortating weakness, I buoyed myself and kept going in the wrong direction. By the time it was over, I was dismayed and I knew it was my own fault. Thankfully, we tend to learn the most when we are in crisis. During that time, I learned so much about housekeeping and cooking and hosting parties. 
I hope the parties were a pleasure to my guests, but they came at a needless physical price to me. There's no reason for me to jump into the endeavor to that degree. The most important lesson I learned from that experience is that God wants to use our go-to gifts to bless both ourselves and others, while the enemy wants to misuse them to harm both ourselves and others. Now, this may sound counterintuitive, but believers tend to think operating in our gifts should be hard work. Maybe we've been trained to think that we must labor for the Lord, that a sacrifice should cost us something or be painful. True, a sacrifice is only a sacrifice if it costs us something, but I don't think it costs what we've always thought. God never asks for the sacrifice of more and harder work from us. He asks for the sacrifice of our lives. He asks us to surrender our control to him so that he can recreate our overworked selves into fully productive children of the King of Kings. My yoke is easy, he said. My burden is light. Did you catch that? It's supposed to be easy. We make it hard when we try to operate in a gift without being nourished and strengthened by the fruit of the Spirit. How would the story have been different if I'd exercised self-control, choosing to host one or two parties to gain some experience and success before jumping into an overwhelming commitment? And how would it have been different if I had taken hold of peace and decided to be content with what I could do safely and effectively instead of trying to do it all? And how would it have looked if I had cultivated kindness showing it not only to my guests, but to myself. Pray for discernment about yourself as you think of my story of trying to be productive for the Lord while relying on my own efforts. When I stepped outside of my basic design, I ceased to abide in Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the times in your life when you may have done the same thing. If we want to burst forth with fruitfulness and productivity, then we must entrust our gifts to the master gardener who makes all things grow. Your gifts will increase along with the fruit that is necessary to sustain them. To entrust our gifts to him is to flow in the design of our gifts as he created them in us. Only in that way will we be productive. This does not mean that we are stuck in the function of only one gift. By sharing my dinner party story, I did not intend to say that an exhorter can never serve. But I do think that when my acts of service are viewed through my exhortation lens, then I view serving in a healthier way. What do I mean by that? Well, if I had viewed serving through an exhorter lens, I wouldn't have put so much emphasis on making all the food from scratch and having fresh flowers and a pressed tablecloth and using china every week. And pretending to be a server, I thought I had to make the presentation about what I could do, which is not the way a real server thinks. But if I'm throwing a dinner party through an exhorter's lens, I probably would have planned the entire event with the encouragement of my guests in my mind. I still love a well-dressed table and flowers, but this time I might order takeout and spend the cooking time thinking of uplifting conversation starters, creating a playlist of cheerful background music, planning after-dinner games, or designing unique place cards with a blessing written for each person. 
By the time I sat down to the table with my guests, I would be refreshed, not tired, because I'd been operating in my exhorter's strength as I served. I would be well-nourished by the fine fruit of goodness, patience, and joy. I would be abiding in him. As you seek new life, you must abide in Christ like never before. You are in a time when you must water the word God has spoken over you by praying, fasting, and meditating on scripture. Continue this sacred practice by writing verses in your journal and reading them out loud over yourself. Jesus said, live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you're joined with me. We simply will not be fruitful if we do not stay with him. But if we do stay with him, to those who remain close, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. In other words, the land, meaning we who are made of earth, will burst forth with fruitfulness. I pray that this blessed you today as you recognize that your spiritual gift is irrevocable and so is your calling. And at the same time that he gives you that calling and gift, he gives you the fruit that you need to sustain it. Abide in him and keep going. Thank you.